Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. The pituitary gland, what it really does is it runs all the day-to-day -day management for your body. So it makes sure that you have enough sugar to get out and, out and about and on your walk or jog. And it helps you respond to things around you by controlling your heart, your lungs, your liver, and uh, your immune system. Pituitary tumors are abnormal growths that develop in your pituitary gland. Pituitary tumors can cause your body to produce too much or too little of the hormones that it needs to regulate important functions. While some tumors don't require treatment, others need to be surgically removed to relieve pressure caused by the tumor. And nowadays, most people do this with endoscopic surgery. And the upside to that is that we actually have to do normal sinus surgery. So if you previously had some obstruction, so deviated septum or some of the things that cause some issues for patients. We actually have to fix that to get back to it. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Jason Howland sitting in for Dr. Helena Gazelka. Pituitary tumors are abnormal growths that develop in your pituitary gland. Pituitary tumors can cause too much or too little of the hormones that regulate important functions of your body to be produced. Most pituitary tumors are non-cancerous growths called adenomas which remain in your pituitary gland or surrounding tissues and don't spread to other parts of your body. There are various options for treating pituitary tumors, including removing the tumor, controlling its growth, and managing your hormone levels with medication. Joining us today to discuss the options available for pituitary tumors is Dr. Jamie Van Gumpel, a neurosurgeon at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Van Gumpel. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having you, having me. And uh, I, I love uh, I love talking about adenomas. This is my favorite subject. All right. Well, let's start it out. Where is the pituitary gland, and what does it do? So the pituitary gland is uh, smack dab in the middle of the head. It's actually right between the back of the eyes, where the eye nerves come into the brain, and um, it's kind of right above the top of the ear canal straight in. So where the, all that meets. And also it's at the back of the air-filled cavities of the nose where they kind of meet up with the back of your mouth. So the pituitary gland itself, it's thought to be the seat of the soul back in the days, but what it really does is it runs all the day-to-day -day management for your body. Right, so it makes sure that you have enough sugar to get out and out and about and on your walk or jog. It kind of gives you enough energy when you're um, maybe you're you know a little scared. It might give some cortisol or steroid out to get you a little bit of extra energy, um, and it helps you respond to things around you by controlling your heart, your lungs, your liver, and uh, your immune system. And how common are pituitary tumors? They're very common. They're uh, uh, one of the most common brain tumors that at least the neurosurgeon sees out of all the tumors that come through the door, about 10% of those are pituitary tumors, at least at the Mayo Clinic. Um, and that's something that I just see, uh, or at least that's a huge part of my practice. That's my job here is to take care of these types of tumors. And are all of those tumors benign? It's very uncommon for any pituitary tumor to be a malignancy or what one would commonly think about as a cancer or something that would travel elsewhere. 99.999% um, of these are benign tumors that cause problems by growing and pushing on the gland or sometimes the eye nerves. Um, 
And uh, yeah, there's there's very few of these actually turn out to be cancers. Yeah, 99.999 is uh, very <laughs> rare, it sounds like. It's extremely rare. In fact, someone even like myself with a really busy pituitary treatment practice, we may see a bad type of a uh, um, pituitary adenoma maybe once or twice a year. And these are coming from other places at, after they've seen them. So uh, what are the symptoms? Are symptoms related to pressure caused by the tumor on the gland? Or is it hormone level changes or is it both? Well, it depends. So out of all pituitary tumors, about half of them aren't making any kind of a substance. And those are called non-functioning adenomas or tumors. And they do cause problems by pushing on stuff. So they'll either take up enough room where the pituitary gland is that it's not functioning well and you have to get medications to, re to uh, uh, replace some of that function. Or you may start to lose vision. That's another very common present presenting symptom with these. When they're actually making something, they cause distinct syndromes. The three most common are prolactin secreting tumors in which we see, especially in women, have breast milk develop um, even when they're not postpartum um, or they could have other issues with that. The other, the other two are Cushing's disease where people can have intractable hypertension. They can gain weight, especially around their belly. They can have diabetes with it. Um, and the third syn syndrome that people can have is called acromegaly. Acromegaly, people are, um, can think of it as when, you know, you, we hear about giants and things like that. That's when people have this disorder before their growth plates close. And so very tall people in the past have almost always had uh, giganticism or acromegaly when they're younger. Acromegaly in adults, what happens is the jaw gets bigger, you sweat a lot. You get your forehead grows out. You can develop uh, diabetes with it. Um, you can have a lot of joint pain, those kind of things. Um, all of them are distinct syndromes and oftentimes they're picked up by primary care physicians when you see some of these things. But the functioning tumors that cause these syndromes are about half of the tumors and the other half are these non-functioning tumors. And, and how do you diagnose uh, how are the tumors diagnosed? So I'm really lucky in that they're almost all discovered before I see them because I have I work with uh, excellent endocrinologists, internal medicine doctors, and family practice doctors. But fortunately, there's an army of primary care physicians out there in the world that have been trained to try to detect these things. But I think the big tip-offs are, so the most common uh, presenting things that we see patients have are either vision loss, so they get in an accident, uh, or they notice that it's more difficult to read. Um, they're either lack of energy um, or lack of the ability to um, perform sexually. Uh, that's common with non-functioning tumors. With the other functioning tumors, obviously having milk letdowns, something that oftentimes shouldn't happen, so that's a, that's a symptom. But Hypertension at, a, at an age when you shouldn't have it or hypertension, so high blood pressure that's not responding to a couple, you know, different types of agents. Those are the most common things that should kind of raise an alarm. When they come to me, someone's done a workup and found out that something's wrong with the pituitary gland. That's an indication to get a picture of it. And most commonly that's done with an MRI. And these tumors very fortunately or very frequently, we can see them. 
in some of the diseases, we can't see them as well, but we know they're there because they have the syndromes that, that some people have had before them with bigger tumors that we could see. So then how do you decide on which treatment option, medication versus radiation or surgery? So for small tumors that aren't causing problems like reduction in, in a pituitary function or not pushing on something, we commonly watch those tumors. For prolactin secreting tumors, so that's, again, that's that um, a syndrome that causes breast milk or in, in men, it can reduce their uh, people's sexual function. That can be treated with a medication. In the acromegaly and Cushing's disease patients, so these are functioning tumors, they do have some medical options, but they're not very good. We oftentimes resect those tumors or take them out um, to try to treat that disease. And then uh, when patients do have surgery, what's, what's recovery like after surgery? Yeah, people always um, really want to know what the experience is like. And fortunately, because it's such a common tumor, um, there's a lot of resources on the internet to reach out to people and understand what it's like. We do the best we can explaining it. And I do want to emphasize that on the internet, there's a range of experiences that back in the 80s and 90s, when they did these procedures, they would pack the nose because they were scared of things coming out of there. And it, um, it was not a great experience for patients. That's not how it is any longer. We've listened to our patients and understand what, what helps them recover quickly. So fortunately, as we said before, this, this area is just in the back of the nose. We actually use a nose normal pathways to get back to these tumors. And nowadays, most people do this with endoscopic surgery. And the upside to that is that we actually have to do normal sinus surgery. So if you previously had some obstruction, so deviated septum or some of the things that cause some issues for patients, we actually have to fix that to get back there. So I tell patients all the time, you might get a twofer with this one. And a lot of times after surgery, people are better. Their noses are, they feel like they can breathe differently. They could, they're not, you know, stuffed up at nighttime all the time anymore. So that's one benefit to these approaches. So getting back there and taking out these tumors, the, the procedure is not very long in most patients. It's usually about 60 minutes to 90 minutes in the operating room. And then we're done. So we take out the tumor. And in a very small subsegment of patients, we have what's, what's called a CSF leak or, or a clear fluid leak from fluid that should be in the brain kind of makes it to where the tumor was. We used to take fat grafts all the time and plug this up. So it was a separate incision. No longer do we do that very frequently. We take just little bits of uh, skin tissue from inside the nose where we've done these repairs and uh, treat it there. And it turns out that that actually ha has a huge um, improvement in patient's healing. When we're done, we put just a little bit of absorbable tissue just back where this is so people can still breathe through the nose after. After surgery, people wake up commonly with a little bit of a headache. Not everybody needs pain medications. I would say it's actually in the minority of patients that need some, something more than ibuprofen or Tylenol. Um, but of course, having narcotic agents is always provided if the headache is, is more severe. That headache goes away very quickly. And in most pituitary tumor surgery, people feel like they can get back to doing what they want to do at two weeks. We still recommend people take about four weeks off because it's, we still did a major surgery and people are fatigued after. Um, but a lot of people are just doing whatever they think they need to, usually by post-op day two or three, 
Um, and I think the recovery is actually quite easy for most patients with this particular operation. There is one caveat in patients that have symptomatic Cushing's disease, if we do our job and cure uh, the patients, they don't feel well after surgery because their cortisone drops and they're actually recovering from the disease process. And those patients are, it's a whole different uh, a ball game for them, but that's not normally from the pituitary tumor surgery itself. That's the recovery from the disease process. You've um, removed a pituitary tumor. Um, how common is it for a tumor to come back and what kind of surveillance do patients need after treatment? It's uh, really uncommon for the tumors to come back. It's more common for some of the more functioning tumors like Cushing's disease. For the non-functioning tumors, it's not very common. Um, we did a study, not of my own patients, but we looked way back because Mayo Clinic has so many great records. Even before modern day techniques, in fact, almost two generations ago for techniques, if you had a tumor resection, and we even see if you had some tumor left behind. Um, as long as you got about 80% of the tumor out, the chance of you needing another treatment over the next decade was only 10%. Now, fortunately, there's not a lot of tumors that we actually choose to leave too much behind. There is um, very straightforward treatment options for residual tumor that, that's uh, left behind um, and starts to grow, though. Nowadays, single-session radiation, so radiation that's done literally in an hour or two, um, is very effective at treating these tumors. So it doesn't necessarily mean, even with recurrence, that you need another operation. And there's also a developing tool bag or toolbox of medications that endocrinologists have been able to use to help control if they come back. But it isn't that uh, frequent that that happens, at least with a good pituitary surgery. Well, I understand you're, you are working on artificial intelligence that may help pituitary tumor patients, specifically the acromegaly patients, uh, predict their outcomes. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, we're, you know, I think what's really important is understanding what realistic expectations are at the front end of an operation. So patients know if they should expect, especially in that tumor. So it turns out in that tumor, when the patient walks through the door, 50% of the time, we know that surgery may not be the, the only thing they need to get control. And we can take characteristics when you walk through that door of how big your tumor is, what your age is, what the blood levels of growth hormone or IGF-1 are. And we can tabulate what the chance is that we can cure you and also what the potential next treatment options might be and give you all that information up at the front end. Um, currently, we're validating this internally and hope to validate this across other centers. Um, and I think that's gonna continue to expand in pituitary surgery and other tumors, in fact, in which we can give you a lot more information at the outset to at least prepare you for what, what is normally supposed to happen with your tumor. And why are referral centers important for the care of patients with pituitary tumors? Because I think that they collect the most modern intervention techniques. And I believe that they ultimately have the highest, the best opportunity for curing someone from these tumors with the lowest potential for complications. I do think it's important to be in an environment that you have excellent colleagues, both in neuroradiology, because the imaging matters. So in certain tumors, if we can see it in, in some 
images you can't sometimes, if we can talk to our neuroradiologist and say, hey, find this thing for us, and they can tell us with confidence where it is, that might be with 7T MRIs, we're opening a PET study this uh, coming um, spring that might help us find these small tumors in patients. We are eminently more effective at, at curing patients, and we're also way better at, at uh, avoiding secondary side effects. Our endocrine colleagues are extremely important at tertiary uh, referral centers. Even if you've received an endocrine workup outside, the, the people that we work with only do pituitary tumors, and they can actually find ways um, in some circumstances to say, hey, this is, this is not the diagnosis here. This patient doesn't need a surgery. And going through their nose and taking the tumor out um, that we don't know is there is, uh, is not the right thing to do. So they can sometimes help us pump the brakes uh, because, you know, our job is not to cause damage if we don't think we can help you, right? Um, and then on top of that, for some of the really uncommon cases, so we, you asked earlier about these aggressive pituitary tumors. It turns out we do see them. And, um, and you might need other colleagues that have an expertise in treating uncommon tumors with chemotherapy agents and things like that. Now, again, that's not a common thing that we have to do with pituitary tumors, but when they're there, we have, paid, we have a huge expertise and a group of people that know how to manage these types of things with molecular profiling of these tumors, with targeted therapies for them, that kind of stuff. Well, I think you you sort of answered this question already, but uh, what does Mayo Clinic offer that makes it unique for pituitary tumors? The endocrine department is one of the most well-known endocrine departments in the world, and the and the multitude of PGAs, so we call them PGA or pituitary group um, endocrinologists that just do pituitary all the time are a remarkable group of people. Not only do they have one person that um, just spends all their time on pituitary tumors, they have a group of almost eight of them. And if they're confused by something, all they have to do is walk across the hallway to the next door and say, what do you think about this? So I think it's hard to replace that kind of uh, collegiality and ability to have those conversations in real time. In the same way, I'm not the only pituitary surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. When um, So I have a couple of other colleagues that I can talk to to say, hey, you know, this is this is a little odd. What do you think about this? And we can talk about it, talk about the potential outcomes and what do we think is the best thing for this patient. And there's not a lot of centers across the world that can say they, they can do things like that. Oftentimes when you go to a, even a referral pituitary center, there's one surgeon and, and maybe one uh, endocrine specialist. Here with such a large group of people, it's very helpful to be able to treat, especially very difficult cases. In addition to that, we have a lot of resources at the Mayo Clinic that a lot of patients don't have, like 7T MRIs, which have been helpful for identifying small tumors or understanding cavernous sinus invasion, um, PET studies that would help us find tumors that maybe are very hard to find. Um, and also there's a bunch of new lab tests that are coming down the line with our endocrine colleagues that would be helpful to figure out some of the more nuanced parts of pituitary tumors. We're also advanced, we also have advanced molecular techniques and diagnosis that we think will help us in the future understand some of these tumors and how they may act um, if they are not completely resected. And all of those things ultimately improving care for the patients. I think so. And I think that's a really good point, Jason, is not only do we have all those advanced technology things, we're also actively engaged in registry, um, uh, a registry around pituitary patients so we can continue to study our outcomes 
and make sure they are as good, if not better, than they were last year. Well, fantastic. Uh, we are unfortunately all out of time, but I'd like to thank our guest today, Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon, Dr. Jamie Van Guffel, for joining us today to discuss pituitary tumors. Thank you, Dr. Van Guffel. Thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate it. Have a great day. And thank you for joining us on Mayo Clinic Q&A. Have a great day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.